You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Welcome back to our session on procurement systems that work for service delivery. It is a pleasure for me to be chairing this panel. My name is Alina Rocha Menocal, and I am a senior research fellow in the politics and uh, governance program here at ODI. And I feel like I'm having a bit of a back to the future moment because I suddenly feel like I have been transported to earlier times um, at ODI with all of my uh, former colleagues in the room. I joined what was called the Center for Aid and Public Expenditure back in the day. I was a very precocious 20-year-old when I was hired. <laughs> no, uh, But it's really nice to see all the familiar faces and um, um, to, to welcome everybody else uh, to the room. Um, I will be having a conversation with three uh, great speakers today. Unfortunately, we lost a fourth one because she lost her voice. Um, but we'll still um, be having um, what promises to be a very rich discussion on procurement systems that work for service delivery. Uh, we will start with Adnan Khan, who is a professor of practice at the LSE School of Public Policy. Um, and he was formerly research and policy director of the International Growth Center, uh, who, which uh, many of you might know, and also co-chair of the LSE Oxford Commission on State Fragility, Growth and Development. Uh, from there, we will move on to Jody. Uh, Wishnia, yeah. who's joining us from South Africa, uh, where, she, where, where she works at Percept, not Percept, Percept Consultants uh, as a public health specialist, and she is completing her PhD at the University of Witz. I can't pronounce Witwart, so I'm just shortening. I hope that's okay. Um, and then um, that will be followed by um, Joe Abba, who is uh, joining us from Nigeria, where he's the country di director of DAI. Um, and previously um, to this role, Joe was working with the government of Nigeria as head of the Bureau for Public Sector Reform. So welcome every, um, um, to the three of you, and um, thank you so much. We will start with you, and each of you has 10 minutes, and I think magically I transported to them, or I transferred to them, the fact that power corrupts and PowerPoint corrupts absolutely, <laughs> um, and none of them have PowerPoint slides with us. <laughs> so that's all very good. So we'll start with you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you for the invitation. Great conference. I learned quite a lot. So in my former life, I used to work in the Ministry of Finance, and I have a lot of sympathy and also a lot of like, appreciation for the work of PFM. Uh, now I work on the, from the other side. I work with Ministry of Finance and other, other governments. And what I'm going to say is a little bit of a caveat to uh, call it a narrow view of PFM, which is uh, all we need to have is more rules, more processes, centrally driven, top-down, ideally from the Ministry of Finance, supported by donors, and will solve the system, all the problems of, of, of governance. Uh, and what I'll say is, is a little bit of caveat to that. I'll say three things. So first of all, which is, for any kind of reform, including PFM, we need to measure, target what, we, what is it that we are trying to improve. So have good measures of whether performance or reforms, and in the absence of which, we may be targeting the wrong kind of thing. And it's not just it is, um, we may be missing the target if you don't define it appropriately. It could be that our efforts could be going in a very counterproductive way. I'll give you examples. Second is we need to diagnose 
the problem before applying solutions to it. Is the fundamental problem in PFM uh, corruption? Or is it inefficiency or is it something else? And if it is corruption, uh, are our measures uh, that we adopt to, to control for corruption um, address those? And how much of this, like how big are these, these issues? And uh, one argument that I'll make is uh, if we target the wrong thing, um, the cure may be worse than the disease. The last thing I'll say is uh, we need to design systems that uh, are not just based on technocratic reforms, but are based on incentive structures both for individual agents, organization, and also incentive structures in the broader political system in whichever country we are working in. Uh, I'll apply these to public procurement, but the same comments are applicable to broadly PFM. Uh, going back to the first question, metrics, measure what we're doing. If you look into procurement manuals around the world, as I have done for more than 40 or 50, they all talk about value for money. Uh, they don't never define what is value for money. Okay. It's a hard thing to do. Conceptually, it's a very hard thing to do. Uh, what this results in practice is a substitution of focus from an economic concept of uh, value for money. Is the procurement efficient or not? to a very legal process-driven definition, were the rules followed or not. And following the rules is very different from whether the procurement was efficient or not. I can draw hundreds of examples from my former life where people are more worried about following the rule, box ticking, is the paperwork done or not. And I've done enough surveys that I can demonstrate this point. People care. Procurement officers around the world spend a lot more time on box ticking and paper, reporting documentation rather than getting good deals. And as I said, that the problem is how do we measure? So with colleagues, Oriana Bendiara, Andrea, and Michael Pratt, so we did a small exercise on a subset of procurement goods, generic goods, the kind of thing that many people buy, uh, paper, pen, stationery, uh, laptops, furniture, uh, hundreds of those things. Um, and we define their, their attributes, their, their quality by, by the attributes that they have. Paper has not too many, A4, grammage per square meter, maybe size, maybe, maybe brand, maybe other things, uh, maybe quantity of purchase also. Laptops would have 30, 20, 30. And then we can use statistical techniques to see quality adjusted unit prices. So we do this exercise to measure whether there is actual variation and uh, do procurement officers actually behave differently. What we discover is procurement officers within the same country, there is a variation of uh, in prices paid by different public bodies for the same thing, a range, a ranging from one to four, like some people are paying four times the prices paid by other bodies. You can reduce it to the quality and all of those attributes that I see, we still find a big difference. Some of that difference get compressed, we still find a big difference. So people are systematically doing something different. And that's not just developing countries. My colleagues did it in, for Italy. They find um, similar, maybe smaller levels of variation um, there as well. And secondly, what we do is we use this to measure what is the source of uh, what is the source of the problem that we are identifying. And again, my colleagues did this work for uh, for Italy ten years ago, where they look into corruption versus inefficiency. They call it active waste waste that benefits someone versus passive waste, inefficiencies. And at least for, the, for that context, more than 80% of the waste that was generated was passive waste, inefficiency. And uh, uh, the caveat there is in our efforts to our current workshops, again with the same co-authors, 
that our efforts to control for corruption may be introducing more of inefficiency. That's exactly what we are discovering in our current work, um, which is we, we can design more. If you think corruption is the main source, and if we design more and more rules to control for corruption, the problem there is every time you introduce a rule, we also need to have uh, a monitor, a regulator, a supervisor who, who monitors whether the rule is followed or not. And then in solving the agency or conflict problem at one end, at the level of the frontline agent, we are only shifting it to another level. And then it's an empirical question, who is more corrupt? Who is more inefficient? And to address this question, so we work with the government of Pakistan and Punjab, large scale field experiment. We designed a new system of how, how we measure these attributes, an online portal called Punjab Online Proc Procurement System. And uh, working with about 1,000 pu public bodies, we also did, uh, we randomly gave some more autonomy, autonomy vis-a-vis -vis the supervisor. Others we gave cash prizes and some both and some business as usual. What did we discover? We discovered that um, uh, autonomy has a big effect because it turns out that, in, at least in that environment, the supervisor is more inefficient or corrupt. It could be either. We can't perfectly separate. So um, more inefficient and, and, and dishonest than the frontline agent. And that could vary from other places. Maybe you're working in a different environment. Again, needs, you need to diagnose that uh, to see what is the source of problem in your environment. But if that were true, in that environment, would designing more rules solve the problem or further create the problem? Would that cure not be worse than the disease and creating further inefficiency? So lastly, uh, just to close, so based on that, we, in that particular context, what we are doing is working with the government. And if you take these results seriously, what implications would it have for designing procurement system that could actually work? And there are two. Uh, that one is, how do we design optimal monitoring regimes that actually work, given that we know this about the environment? And that's something that we are working on. And our current thoughts are like uh, giving more autonomy to, to frontline agents, giving them, uh, delegating more authority and autonomy, but also developing these measures to measure whether they are actually performing or not, and strengthening ex post accountability mechanisms. Um, if you trust people more, they're more likely to be to, to be act in trustworthy ways, um, as perhaps Dan would put it. Uh, so the other is how would technology interact with this? Given that one of our interventions is use of technology to also to to address this, and there uh, again we are working with the government in designing something like, or for lack of a better word, we are calling an Amazon-like system of public procurement, uh, which is both a technocratic solution, but also addresses the incentive structures and for human beings, individuals, organizations, and others. Just as a starting point, I don't know, I'm not sure how it will work, uh, pan out in future. But just to conclude, um, uh, I'm not making a pitch that uh, those measures that we are developing are exactly the measures to be followed. I'm making a general point that we need to measure, we need to devote more resources, more thought into measuring what we actually uh, are targeting. Developing, otherwise we'll be, we could be completely mistargeting. Our measures may not, be, may not be perfect. In fact, they only work for a subset of goods. They don't work, every bridge, every road is different. And our current challenge is also how do we design good measures for these type of procurement goods. Uh, but if you don't address the, if you don't measure it appropriately, and then just legal or compliance or compliance by rules is, is 
not a substitute for economic efficiency as we can clear, uh, we can show in our work also. Uh, the second point again that I like uh, recapping uh, is um, is diagnosing the source of the problem using both theory and data and also like um, uh, both analytical frameworks but also working with that's also a call for uh, my colleagues in the Ministry of Finance and other agencies in the government know a lot more about the context uh, the local and institutional context that anyone from outside could have but Working with people from the outside who could also bring something complementary could help understand, diagnose those problems in a more effective way than only people, uh, of people on the on the inside alone. So some collaboration between insiders and outsiders, uh, maybe a collaboration between my former life and my current self. And uh, lastly. Uh, Designing system which is not just technocratic but also ad address the incentive problems of uh, the call it the accountability or the accounting problems uh, of, of individuals and organizations, but also testing them. The best of design system may not work. We need to to how do I know I'm wrong? And how do I design a mechanism that is error proof in a way that I learn over time and. Uh, in a feedback loop, I improve things over time. I learn from my own mistakes. Um, how do we establish these kind of mechanisms within organizations, make them more learning organizations, is, um, is a challenge for PFM and broadly for development, I would say. Let me stop. Thank you very much, Adnan. I think um, a lot of what you have um, said touches very much um, with the work that we do in politics and governance around the need to understand why things work the way they do and they need to think and work in more politically aware ways that are grounded in contextual reality. So this issue that you don't necessarily just have a technocratic solution or a solution that is based on formal rules, but actually have to understand why people operate the way they do. So that, that resonates very um, much with our work. And um, let me turn over to uh, Jody now, who will be speaking specifically about um, the procurement um, system and, and health issues. Um, and so 10 minutes, maybe. Uh, hi everyone, my name is Jodi. Um, Kalina said I'm from South Africa. I am hopefully finishing up my PhD this year, although you never know, I guess. Um, and then I also, uh, the other four days of my week, I'm a public health consultant at a small health consulting startup named Percept. Um, and maybe just a little bit of background in that uh, sort of the beginning of my career, I worked within our National Department of Health. Um, and the formative experience was really that I started in the policy and planning unit for two years and through that did some work on what we call the district health expenditure reviews but very much within the planning space and got but interested in the finance things and then I swapped over to the public financial management support unit within National Department of Health and then got quite interested in the finance things. Um, and I think from there that's also where my PhD topic came from. Um, I for I don't know, for better or worse, decided that my career is going to be about trying to be, bring these two arms together. Um, and I think, whereas I agree with Shea, that to some extent in these very PFM spaces, you can feel a little bit uh, like othered. You know, you're from the health sector and very, you know, a bit uh, more specific than, than general PFM. But I think me being here is a, a sort of a, a right step for the PFM community in terms of talking about these things a bit more, a bit more. Um, 
sort of confrontationally, uh, and, and that there have been other health spaces where the things I've had to say about PFM haven't been that well accepted either. So I don't think it's just the PFM community that's struggling at the moment to figure out how we do this. It's both, it's both sides, sides is the wrong word, or both arms. Um, yeah, and so hopefully, uh, I, you know, what I'm about to say will also answer Lewis or Louis' question from earlier around uh, nailing down some actual recommendations. What could we do? Um, and I'm going to say them, and then I'm going to allow you to tear them apart. Um, but I think it's, it is important to me as well that we start to get super pragmatic uh, in what we talk about. So maybe the first thing, last disclaimer, is just that my research wasn't on procurement particularly. It was on the experience of public financial management reform within a Department of Health in South Africa. But of course, if you talk about PFM, you're going to talk about procurement. So it wasn't hard to go back to the data and find uh, some of the themes that came out about procurement. Um, and my research was in one of the provinces. Um, and I did observations and uh, interviews within the province over the space of a year. And, you know, as, as Neil said in his talk, I'm not sure if he's still here or if he's, if he's had to leave, but, you know, South Africa does have very strong decentralization policy. It's written up in our, in our Finance Management Act and it's in, it's in our National Health Act, but we just haven't really implemented, implemented it. And uh, as a result, financial management really varies over our nine provinces. And what we see, I think, similar to what um, people in the previous panel were saying, is that the areas that have better health outcomes tend to be a little bit more decentralized, tend to have given over a bit more control at the lower levels. Um, but majorly, we're really struggling in South Africa, I think, with financial management. And we still tend to hold on to centralization as the answer to maintaining control and bringing back some order. And the province I was uh, sort of with, they had been struggling with audit outcomes for years, notoriously the one of the worst performing provinces. And so the provincial treasury said to them, you need a new CFO, and the mandate of that CFO is to pick, is to pick up your audit outcomes. That's, that's his purpose. And uh, the way he did it was to centralize absolutely everything uh, through a centralization committee at the head office. Um, and that committee, and it's important to hold this in your head for the rest of the talk, it was actually multidisciplinary. It wasn't just a finance committee. It was chaired by the CFO. It had finance managers, but it also had uh, district health services uh, program managers at the head office. It had infrastructure. It had uh, HR. It was actually at least one representative from each of the units within the head office that sat on that centralization committee. Um, but despite this, it still landed up being a very finance-facing uh, committee, and even those on the committee who weren't part of the finance establishment basically didn't feel empowered to really change the course of any of the discourse of that, um, of that committee, and, and therefore there was fallout within the committee, but there's also massive fallout across the system between service delivery and finance and finance-facing managers. Um, and as a result, uh, a trust deficit that I think we've been speaking about quite a lot uh, today. Um, yesterday I was worried that we weren't going to get there and I was going to drop a bomb, but now I feel quite safe that we all agree that there is, there is a bit of a trust deficit. Um, and, and really what, what some of the managers I interviewed spoke about was that the centralization committee has really slowed down procurement. Um, and there were three major reasons that came up for why that happened, and I think these will be fairly obvious, but I'm hoping we'll then get to those recommendations and, and have a robust discussion. So the first reason why procurement was slowed down by the centralization uh, committee was really around poor budget formulation. So um, the way that the, the budgeting works, and Neil explained a really nice uh, policy process of how our budgeting works in South Africa, but the reality is I was in the province, province two weeks ago 
uh, no, last week, uh, and uh, it was two days before final budget submission, and the head of budget was still on the phone to pre provincial treasury trying to work out how they can cut and where and how. And so although we might have a long time, we're still making decisions two days before it's time to finalize. And so our process is not working as it should be, uh, even though we have a nice, uh, you know, a nice sort of process on paper. And so because everything's centralized at the, at the head office, um, when managers want to swap items around in their budget because they had too little time to budget properly, uh, the head office was becoming overwhelmed by that, by that because they were dealing with everything. So then they decided, okay, you're only allowed to shift funds four times a year because we can't cope to, with all these phone calls every day. So obviously, not only through a centralization committee, but now there are only four times in the year where you can change what you decided to do procurement absolutely slowed down um, to, to, to quite a glacial pace, I would say. Um, the second major reason for slowed down procurement as a result of the centralization was the committee's inability to ass assess effectively what we should buy with the limited money. So there was limited cash, and that's a reality. Um, but the centralization committee, its makeup was still at the head office, not people at the lower levels who were or who were particularly familiar with the day-to-day -day grind of uh, providing service services in the health system. And as a result, a lot of managers would say the decisions felt arbitrary. You know, you'd put in two expenditure requests. One would get approved, one would, wouldn't get approved, but the one that was approved was pens, and the one that didn't get approved was oxygen masks or something. And people were sort of saying, okay, how, do, you know, how does this make sense? And the committee was saying, well, we only had enough money for pens. So you got those ones you should be happy, right? So really the, the thinking around how the committee prioritized wasn't very effective. Um, and the third major reason for the sluggish sort of procurement was really around um, the centralization committee being overly bureaucratic. So I think a major thing was that the committee asked managers to put in expenditure requests that would then be denied or approved. But if you were approved, when it was time to pay your service provider, you have to go through the committee again to now ask for approval to pay. Right? So even if, so what happened is you got, a, you got approved to spend, you would, you, would get, you would sort of procure the services, you would have a commitment, and then you would need to pay the service provider, and now the committee says, sorry, actually, we, we, you can't pay, we don't have cash this month. Um, and obviously that creates a lot of tension between service providers uh, and the lower levels of the system, and then providers don't actually want to provide to the Department of Health anymore because they don't feel safe that they'll get paid. And then we land up only with the sharks and the corrupt people who are willing to take the, take the hit and get paid later, but they've upped their price by so much that it doesn't matter that you're only paying later because that's their whole, their whole budget for the year or whatever the case is. Um, and, and obviously the, the other major thing is just that it was a lot of paperwork for managers. Now they're doing you know, the, same, the same thing uh, twice or even more if they got bounced the first time. So um, I think just... Where I'm sitting from at the moment is, and, and Shea's article actually is really excellent in, in framing this, is that we're talking a lot in the health sector, should we decentralize or should we centralize? Should we be in the middle? Where should we be? And I think the thing that came out really strongly from this province is centralization is not going anywhere. The provincial treasury is not going to allow it to go anywhere, at least for now. Um, and the finance managers don't feel safe. For better or worse, rightly or wrongly, they aren't going to decentralize at this point. So what can we do now to make it better? And I think that's really where uh, I'm hoping we can start to have some robust discussions around the reality rather than the theory of what we should or could do. 
So the first thing was really came out strongly was, um, and I think it's, it's come out quite a bit, is communication and feedback. So even if you have a centralization committee and it's extremely centralized and it's you know, really at the top of the system, there are ways to communicate why you've made certain decisions. You know, something really simple like in the Excel, in the last comment, can't the committee just write the reason why they denied instead of just writing, we denied. You know, and that would help the managers at least to understand a little bit what happened. Was it something they did or was it the cash or was it actually that the committee decided this wasn't important? And that, and that was really, um, it came out quite strongly. And then there were three particular solutions that we could work on within a centralized system. So I'm not, I'm not promoting centralization as the answer. Uh, I'm being pragmatic about where we are now and meeting managers with where we are. So the first was really um, bringing in senior supply chain managers at the facility level to help the facilities to actually procure better, to make better expenditure requests. So moving those technical, those technical skills down to where the coal face is happening. And I think someone mentioned uh, yesterday, I keep thinking the conference was three days, it's been so much content, but I think yesterday someone was sort of mentioning like, what is the role of PFM specialists? If you're saying, you know, we don't want this divide, what could we do? And I think what came out of my research is that we need to be where the things are happening. We cannot be sitting in the Ministry of Finance or at the head office or in an NGO, whatever the case is. We need to be sitting in the facility or in the district management office and actually being listening to what's happening and then providing really helpful technical advice on those specific finance areas that are our specialty. Um, and hopefully that would then improve value for money uh, because you would have those technical skills there sitting with the clinical skills making those decisions. The second major solution was really around orientating clinical teams to procurement processes. So a lot of the clinical managers were saying, you know, one told me a story about how she bought these airways and she thought, okay, great, I'm going to buy 100, we need so many, this is going to smash my budget and I'm going to be told that I am really good at spending because that's what we care about. And so she did that and then she found out that there were about, you know, three rand an airway and she'd spent about 3,000 rand, you know, like really a little, little bit of money. Um, and she was sort of saying, if someone had told me that this is actually a really cheap item and if I'm trying to spend this amount of money, we can buy that, but you can buy more, actually, she might have done that. So to really try and start to bring clinical managers into the finance conversation so that they can also contribute and make more rational budget requests as well. Um, the last recommendation was really around transparent budgeting. And I think we're sitting in a situation in South Africa, and I think many countries are, where we just don't have enough money for the plans that we make. And what's happened is the service delivery managers are starting to say, I don't even see the point in planning because I make this whole plan, we spend time, we bring people together, we send it in and when it comes back it's completely different. It's not even, it's not even a little bit different, it's just completely different. Um, and what people were saying is maybe we can actually just get a bit of a budget ceiling from even if it's way less than what we wanted, but if we know, you know, we need to work within this, you know, whatever it is, 10 million rand ceiling, what would we do with that amount and create more uh, sort of rational and uh, meaningful plans that we would be able to bring service delivery managers back into the planning phase? Because at the moment, they just, they've opted out because, that, because they feel very frustrated that it's, that it's actually not working for them. I think the last point is really, um, around a best practice in this particular province that I think is worth us uh, talking about in this forum. 
And one of the district teams um, had developed what they called a procurement acceleration committee. Uh, so they acknowledged that things were really slow, and they were acknowledged that, uh, so that they acknowledged that head office said that they weren't spending as much as they should or as fast as they should. And so they developed this committee that sat weekly. And again, it was a mixed disciplinary committee, finance, service delivery, clinical managers, etc. Um, and they went through the budget and they said, okay, what does our procurement plan say? Are we ready to spend that yet? Or do we not need it anymore? And if we don't, who else might want to spend that money? And then we, they were able to move things much, much faster uh, as a district through the centralization committee and get, and get answers back much quicker and be able to obviously procure, which had a, a better impact on service delivery, of course. Um, I think the only niggle for me with that one is that what they were doing is if a manager wasn't ready to purchase what they had said they wanted on the plan, they would sort of auction it off. You know, who else wants something? And then someone else in the committee would say, oh, yes, we're desperate for whatever. And then they would get, they would get that thing. And, and, and they're also doing uh, not the best sort of prioritization in that way either. But I think it was a really novel way of trying to get around uh, the sluggishness and the turnaround time. Uh, and, I, yeah, I guess uh, I'm hoping that uh, my contribution on this panel is that we can have some really pragmatic conversations about what we can do within the systems that we work um, to make things a little bit better every day and and perhaps as we move people along along that process you know we'll eventually get to a place where decentralization is a is something that people from within are asking for rather than sort of external people saying this is what you should you should be doing so I'll stop there thank you thank you very much Jody I forgot to say that this is um, a a session that is being recorded and and streamed live elsewhere I think that's the the part of the course for all, the whole of the conference. But so I did want to welcome our um, audience outside of this room. So apologies for that. But thank you, Jody, for your remarks. I think, again, what you what you have shared with us resonates very much with a lot of the work that we do in the politics and governance uh, program, which makes me very, um, uh, it makes me feel very encouraged because there's a lot of cross-pollination and fertiliza um, cross-fertilization, in particular about the need to recognize that things don't always work the way they, that it says on paper and the absolute need to be pragmatic starting by what you actually have in place rather than what you wish you had in place. Um, and I'm loath to quote Donald Rumsfeld, for those of you who might remember who he was, but he did say in one act of brilliance, you need to work with the institutions that you have, not the institutions you wish you had. I think you've made that point very clearly and what that means in terms of diagnosing the problem and possible ways to address it. Um, um, thank you so much. Let, now let me turn to you, uh, Joe, and I, um, you'll be sharing examples with us, hopefully, of the challenges of getting projects executed on the ground, so where the rubber hits the ground. Thank you. Thanks very much, uh, Alina, and thanks for inviting me to, to this conference. Um, like uh, Shea, I am not a public finance management person. I am something much, much worse. Um, <clears throat> I used to work here in the UK, in the Cabinet Office in the UK, in the heady days of uh, Tony Blair's public service reform efforts. Um, and at that time, as a, as a senior civil servant and a higher rate taxpayer, I was very, very concerned about how DFID was using my tax money. And I felt that they were getting away with murder, actually, that, that the kind of strictures were under the home civil service. Uh, DFID and the, and the FCO were not under the same sort of strictures. And then I moved back to Nigeria to go and run various different projects. 
which I did for about 10 years. So I've gone from, you know, working in this environment where I'm contributing aid money uh, to working in this environment where, as in Nigeria, and I'm also a recipient of aid money, as well as a, a representative of, uh, of a donor program. And then after about 10 years, I was appointed into the federal government in Nigeria to reform its public services, and was made responsible for coordinating donor support to the reform efforts. And then uh, I did that for four years, and now I work for an international development uh, company. And so having been given money to spend all of my career, I now have to make money um, from the corporate side for, for, for others to spend. So you can see that I've been damaged by everyone, uh, <laughs> basically. But if we talk about uh, procurement, uh, a country assessment, a World Bank country assessment in 2000, found that 60 pence out of every pound that government spends in Nigeria uh, goes into corrupt practices. It goes into corrupt uh, uh, procurement practices. So 60%, actually. And since we put in place uh, a public procurement regime and a Bureau of Public Procurement, uh, the country has saved about two billion pounds. And that, that, those savings are the difference between what people initially wanted to spend and then what they were eventually allowed to spend after some scrutiny and due diligence. So, substantive amount of money. What is there not to like? I mean, two billion pounds. That's a lot of money. Um, Particularly as uh, most of the studies of grand corruption will show that uh, you, it's very difficult to perpetrate grand corruption without using the procurement system. And so most grand corruption is about contracts and some sort of procurement or the other. Um, in 2016, so, so 16 years after this uh, World Bank finding that 60% goes into corrupt practices, the Independent Corrupt Practices Commission in Nigeria announced that 60% of corruption cases in Nigeria were procurement related. So the more things change, the more things remain the same. Um, so what is, the, what is the problem? Let me quote from uh, a minister. The, the, his name is Babatunde Fashola. He's the minister of power. Uh, he was the minister of power, works, and housing. He's now just the minister of works and housing. So he's basically the minister in charge of infrastructure development. So serious uh, portfolio. He said, and I quote, our procurement laws are not compatible with the speed with which we want projects to be executed. The way our procurement law is enacted, it is the big contractors that can make the most money. Our law is holding us back. And as if to buttress his point, between the late passage of the budget and the procurement laws and systems that we have, um, his ministry managed not to execute a single project in the year 2017, despite having the largest budget. And so you had a budget that was passed late, 
and then you have this uh, very elaborate, uh, very elaborate uh, procurement system, where um, if the value of the procurement is more than five thousand five hundred pounds, you have to advertise it in two national newspapers at least. Um, advertising in two national newspapers can sometimes cost five and a half thousand pounds. Um, but, but, but don't worry about that. We, we worry more about the rules uh, being followed. And then to make sure that everybody gets a chance to participate, you have to give providers six weeks um, in order to respond. And then if it's above a certain threshold, it has to go to the Federal Executive Council, so like the Cabinet, uh, to give approval for you to go through that procurement. And before, you, before you've done all of this, the rainy season has set in, and so it's very difficult to then do any, uh, uh, any road works or any major infrastructure uh, work. And then shortly afterwards, the financial year ends, and the Ministry of Finance wants to pull back the money into the Treasury, so that it's, not, it's not just there. So you have this cycle that, that, um, that goes on and on. And then you have the uh, Director General of the Budget Office of the Federation say, and I quote, if relied upon the way it is designed, the law is capable of killing growth in the local economy. And so you have the, you have the Minister in charge of infrastructure, you have the Director General of the Budget Office of the Federation talking about the, the procurement law as a constraint. And, and part of the reason why this is the case is because as at 2007, when this procurement law was put in place, the intention was we need to stop corruption and we need to provide a level playing field for everyone, which you would agree are very noble intentions. You, you, know, you can't argue with, with those two things. However, you need to be careful that the, the, uh, the, the, the procurement system doesn't become the end in itself. Because if, if the people who are to drive infrastructure and, and drive the budgeting are saying this system is actually an impediment to development and growth, then I think you need to think about that very, very carefully. And I agree with uh, Adnan to a large extent, but I, I would modify what he said about putting in place metrics and, and measures just slightly. And I will say you need to start with what is your primary purpose? If your primary purpose is to drive development and growth, then your PFM system and your PFM laws, your procurement system and your procurement laws, would prioritize that at the same time as looking for ways to minimize leakages and corruption. But if you start from, I want to minimize leakages and corruption, then you can actually lose sight of what you're trying to do uh, in, the, in the development space. I want to end by um, just trying to find out who I've got in the room. And so, um, <clears throat> assume that I work for 
any of your organizations. So I work for DFID, World Bank, GIZ, ODI. I work for any of them. And I go to see a governor and I say, you know, Mr. Governor, it would be great if you put in place certain procurement laws and systems uh, to, to, to reduce corruption. And of course, you say, oh, yeah, absolutely. We're, we're, we're going to work on that. And um, yeah, we would, by the time you see us next year, um, we would have made a lot of progress. And then as we're walking out of the door, he calls me back, Joe, come back. Uh, oh, your team can't wait for you outside. You come back. And then I come back. And he says, uh, you're a Nigerian like me. <laughs> and you seem like a smart guy. <laughs> you know, people give you that benefit of the doubt when you wear glasses. You know. <laughs> so he goes, take off your glasses, because I want us to see eye to eye. And he says, you know this procurement law you want me to put in place and this regime, I will never sign it. It will never happen. However, um, oh, and the reason why it will never happen is because I'm a politician. I have to service the party. I have to give party members contracts. It doesn't matter what I say in public. This is the reality, I, I'm telling you, because I expect you to understand. And so the one way in which I'm ever going to subscribe to this is if you allow me keep 10% of the budget and it doesn't pass through the procurement system. We can call it special projects. We can call it anything we like, but that 10% enables me to service the party machinery, um, you know, to keep order within the system. Uh, if you do that, the law will be passed next week and I'll assent to it. So go back and tell your colleagues, find a way to tell your colleagues that uh, this is what I need to do. So, here I am, colleagues. <laughs> Should we accept or not? By a show of hands, <laughs> maybe you who, have to close their eyes. Who, <laughs> who is the pragmatist and who is the purist? That is the challenge I leave you with. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much, Joe. I like to say corruption is not black and white, but 50 shades of gray. <laughs> so I think you've got it, uh, you hit it on the, on the head right there. I remember the heady days of T Tony Blair, and believe me, we miss them. We also have, in the meantime, left Europe, so a lot of stuff has happened in the UK <laughs> since. But that's for another conversation. Um, thank you. I thought the comments that you made really resonate very nicely with the other um, discussion we have been having. And I'm curious about, um, you know, you made a very strong point that rules themselves don't, don't change um, uh, the behavior. And with your example that you left us with, you, you um, 
very clearly articulated that as well. And you have put the, the issue of corruption firmly um, at the center of, of the conversation. Um, so hopefully uh, we can um, now invite a discussion from the, from the audience and try to tease out uh, what the implications of this might mean and, and really if we do require a much more pragmatic approach to uh, procurement processes given the incentives at play, what that might look like and what kinds of trade-offs um, does that uh, impose on different actors. So um, please let me, let me invite uh, people uh, to raise their hands. Um, these could be questions, but hopefully also more um, a conversation that we can have across. And we will also get people to send me questions through this very nice gadget <laughs> that I can't use. I don't know how to use it. <laughs> I don't own one of these, so I have no idea what this is even. <laughs> um, so it's dark. Help. <laughs> uh, in the meantime, though, can we ask? Um, I see that Magali has a microphone. I don't know who else on this end has one, but please raise your hands um, and contribute to the conversation. So we have you. Then we have um, Mark in the back. If you can also please identify yourself yeah. when you speak, thank you. So my name is Neil Cole. I work for the Club to Africa Budget Reform Initiative based in South Africa. Um, I, mean, I think it's useful to think about this, this sort of pragmatic or realistic approach. But I think there's a, a, a prior um, thought, and that is that the way that procurement in the public sector um, is structured needs to change. I think that we're spending too little time planning. I think we're spending too much time on procuring the goods. Um, and that could be because of corruption, because the laws are not well understood, because we have complicated decentralized systems, variety of reasons. And then when it comes to the service being implemented, I think we're spending too little time on contract management. And that may have to change to look a bit like um, what happens within the private sector, where we s a lot more time is spent on planning, where the rules are clear, so procurement is over a shorter period of time, because cost is an important consideration. If you're spending too long time on procurement, you are pushing up the cost, um, and then to spend a lot more time on contract management. And what that may mean also is that we would need to bring into the public sector different type of skills. Because um, I don't think we have skills within the public sector to manage contracts. I don't think we have good planners. Um, I think we have bureaucrats um, that are in some cases captured um, during that procurement process. And if you think about the, 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 the reason why South Africa is struggling to keep on the lights, is, is because of those delays in procuring the boilers for two large coal-fired power stations. Um, and it turns out that it was an attempt to ensure that PALS got contracts, um, that certain investment, investments made by the ruling party was linked to the procurement of those boilers. Um, so I think there's a, there, there's a structural change that needs to happen within the way that the public sector procures. Thank you. Hi, this is uh, Mark Miller from ODI. Um, 
so I really appreciated the you know the very clear picture of some of the uh, damage potentially to service delivery through having overly stringent uh, procurement regulations. I guess my question is why do we think this kind of compliance orientation persists? You know, if it's recognised, for example, that it's a constraint to growth, if it's recognised apparently across different ministries that it's a problem, what's, what's holding it back from being changed? We have the gentleman here um, on the <coughs> end. Ah, okay. So my name is my. There's a lady in red as well. And okay. So my name is David Nabena uh, from the Nigeria Governors Forum. Uh, very interesting conversations coming in, and um, it's important to see the link between PFM and uh, service delivery, but. I think one other theme that really cuts through is the political economy of it and um, what really motivates you know, political action. So what drives those decisions? So you find in jurisdictions where you have some of these laws in place, you have these tools in place, but it doesn't work. And you have some other jurisdictions where you don't find the tools in place, but you find service delivery going up. So um, it's important that we also Add the element of you know political economy in some of the PFM tools and and the, the decisions that we push forward, because what really matters is what drives you know the decision of the political actors to get things done. Thank you. I have the gentleman here at the end. Then the what's happening with this side of the room? <laughs> <laughs> yes, we have. Okay, so we have. Oh, we have someone. Okay, so we have. Uh, you over here, the lady in red, and I wanted to bring Maya in, and then the lady in the nice colors, and then. Yes, yes. Hi, this is uh, Zahir Ali from Icarus UK, and my, and, and my question was specifically around the incentive structures which are there. And, and the basic question is how do you go about developing these incentive structures and what recommendations the panel have, especially when we're dealing with country uh, situations where, in many cases, the informal institutions and the informal ways of working are more entrenched than the formal laws and, you know, every, um, and uh, rules that might be, be there. And secondly, what um, what was uh, referred to as active waste, that where it is the incentive of the government official to maintain the, st the status quo as well. Thank you. Can you just pass the microphone to the gentleman right in front of you? Thank you. Thank you very much. <coughs> Again, my name is Luis, the, the purist. I understand the, the tension between rules and efficiency, and I think the first presenter captured this excellently well. In the course of uh, uh, articulating proposals for, for, for solving the problem, I think you mentioned the you flagged the issue of technology, but I, I didn't quite uh, uh, see you interrog interrogate that a little bit uh, uh, deeper. It would have been nice to understand how technology uh, figures in, in this calculation. 
does it obviate the shortcomings of the rules? And uh, how does it change the overall picture if we introduce the uh, uh, technology into the equation? Thank you very much. Um, it was a lady in red, yeah, thank you. Morning, my name is Alexandra, I'm a freelance consultant. Um, I've been working on fiscal space for the social sectors over a number of years. And one of the areas that they're increasingly looking at is efficiencies. And quite a lot in health sectors come from procurement of efficiencies. So if we're having these inefficient procurement systems where the line ministries are being pressured to make more efficiencies, use your procurement, get a cheaper unit price. However, what's the incentive for these line ministries? How if they do change these systems and make them more efficient, they lose their budget, they have reduced. So is there any examples of where countries have made these improvements but then managed to take those savings and put them back, reinvest them into service delivery? So you make procurement savings somehow but then you can increase your quality or increase your quantity of your rollout of your health systems. So th is there any examples of th those? Thank you. Um, we have about half an hour left, so I, what I will do now is hold the questions for the next round and hopefully encourage this side to ask more questions. But maybe we can start with you, Jody, and then we go in this order, um, three minutes each or so, if in sure. response. <clears throat> so I think... Um, one, the, I think the only question I would really like to answer, I thought the other comments were, were really important, but the one that I would like to talk about is Mark's question around why does it, why does it persist? And I hope I won't lose you at this point, but uh, a lot of my research is actually, even though I'm a public health specialist and trying to do PFM work, I've landed myself in like public management at this point with journals telling me I don't belong in health journals and I don't belong in PFM journals. Um, you know, now I must go to public management journals, which obviously doesn't, doesn't suit me. But I think the answer, Mark, is that um, it persists because there is a fundamental difference in values between finance and service delivery people at this point. And when you ask them why each of them are there in the organization, they're in the public sector, so all broadly agree that that is a meaningful place to be, right? There's no one there who's you know, expecting to make major profits or anything like that. But the finance managers predominantly said the reason they are there is to protect public funds. They are the safeguard of funds. The reason why service delivery people said they are there was to provide services to the indigent population, that they are there to provide a public health service. And I think, you know, let's leave a Treasury or a Ministry of Finance out and talk about just within the Department of Health. If you have these two arms within one organization that have such differing values of why they are there, what their purpose is, uh, I think that's why it continues to persist. And I really do believe that we need to find ways to bring those two arms together, to find a way to convince both sides that both are important, but we both need to care about each other's each other's values and actually the purpose of a Department of Health or a Department of Education is service delivery. I mean that is the purpose but we won't have any if we don't have good public financial management governance and I think that's where there's just this continuous tension. Uh, so, so my answer to why it, does, why it persists is that we have to find better ways to communicate with each other and find uh, more common ground. Um, yeah. Thank you very much. Okay, so, so I agree with, uh, with Neil that, uh, you know, we need to change the, the structure of, um, of how public sector procurement works, and we need to spend a lot more time in, in, in the planning, and to make the, the procurement itself a lot more nimble, I'll say. 
Um, why does it persist? I also agree with, with, with Jody's uh, assessment. I guess one of the other reasons why it persists is that despite all the rules and all the laws, procurement hasn't really been, the corruption hasn't really been dented. So why bother? You know, so, so you only have a few people who are deeply committed to, to doing things better, who are saying that, look, this is a problem. Um, the majority don't actually care um, very much. Um, if, the, if enough people cared about the procurement system rules and laws impeding the work that they do, then there'll be a much louder outcry uh, for, for it to change. That, that isn't... Um, that isn't currently the case. But this issue of the, the balance between the, the, the finance function and the service delivery function is actually quite real. Um, the, the, if I give you another example, it, I assume you were appointed into government as a director general or some sort of uh, uh, accounting officer, they are called, and you wanted to procure a vehicle. And so if you if you go through the procurement process, just like Jody has said, for something that costs 20,000 pounds, the bids you get will be about 35,000 pounds because they know it's government, they know government doesn't pay on time, they know that you need to show appreciation uh, to a number of uh, government officials, and so it comes in at 35,000 pounds. And so you come in and say, that makes absolutely no sense. I can simply go down to the Toyota dealer and buy it for 20,000 pounds. And when you do that, um, you may think you're seeking value for money. You may think you're protecting government funds. You've actually broken the law. And you could go to jail for it. And so, and so you've got this tension between, okay, do I try to save money for government or do I follow the rules, and you are told in very clear terms, we don't care about value for money, we care about the rules. Uh, you must follow the rules. And so this is, the kind of, this is the kind of tension that happens. And as it happens, the people in the Ministry of Finance, the people in the procurement function, are those with the power. Uh, they are those that can report you to the anti-corruption agencies for not having followed the rules. So the, the, the balance of power is such that it is not the person who's charged with delivering services to the people that, uh, that has more of the power. It's those charged with the responsibility of stopping them uh, from uh, misusing the, the, the funds. Um, political economy, of course, very, very important. And I think the example I, I gave of, of, a, of a conversation with a, with a governor, um, I think exemplifies that. Um, examples of uh, procurement savings being put back, well, just like we, we had in the UK here, we also put in an efficiency unit in the, in the Ministry of Finance in Nigeria, which was able to uh, save quite a bit of money by procuring certain things in bulk and by uh, being so um, rigorous that it told you how much you could spend per tea break. Um, whether it found itself into additional funding for health or additional funding for education 
remains to be seen, but it did show that it was possible uh, to rethink certain aspects of procurement in a way that it can save the public uh, more money. So it is possible. Um, finally, um, incentive structures. Again, I think I've, I've, I've addressed this. If the incentive is to, is to hold people to account for delivery, then it's a different mindset from um, you know, just counting up the numbers that have been saved, in quotes, from uh, following a procurement process. So the, 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 uh, as I said from the start, the primary purpose of what you're trying to do and what you're trying to achieve as, as a country, as a ministry, as a society, must be the guiding principle of, of everything you do. Everything else, including the procurement system, should be an enabler to enable you to do that rather than an end in itself. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. All great questions. So let me just address a few, uh, starting with Mark's question of why do bad practices persist? Billard-Dollar uh, question, so, but on, on, so I would say like a, Partly what uh, Joe already mentioned, so partly because of perverse incentives in the current system. If you are a procurement officer, if you're held accountable for the documentation, whether you know, the rules were followed or not, then your incentive is obviously to follow the rules. No one will give you a reward you for better procurement, but you'll be held accountable if, God forbid, uh, the paperwork is not there. Um, <laughs> It could also be uh, incentives in the political system. So scandals, so as we all know, political systems everywhere are hypersensitive to a few cases or one case of, uh, say, major corruption uh, versus, say, uh, many cases of petty inefficiency or waste will not be uh, the headline on Daily Mail versus, like, one case of a, of a bag of corruption. How do we design political systems which are proof to this is, again, like a big question um, that requires a longer discussion. But at least, like, let me give you one comment on at least the project that we did. We were concerned about whether, uh, on average, do we find savings from giving the procurement officers more autonomy? But are those savings outweighed by a few cases of massive corruption, um, in which case, technically, do we find a left tail like a, of a big, like, um, uh, a scandal. We don't find that. At least in that particular piece of evidence, we don't find. The last comment would be, I think some of the ways that we, uh, idea, bad ideas could also be a big source of uh, persistence of bad practices. And uh, some of us, uh, some of the ideas that we, maybe PFM or like people in, in or outside government could be propagating, could also be a source of that. So uh, just to give you one example, if you think uh, there's an obsession with practices, best practices, and best practices may not be the good way of, uh, may not be best practices, in other words. So I did this other work uh, Alina mentioned on uh, state fragility, state building in, in weak and weak places and failed states. One of the major sources of failure there is best practices. So follow what Denmark is doing and copy Denmark. And now uh, I can give you many examples of why Denmark is not perfect uh, and procurement there. We have all cases of UK, US. Uh, if you're interested, just read the work by my Kennedy School colleague, Steve Kelman, who shows $1,000 paid for a, for, a, for a hammer and other things. But again, like Denmark is there, like uh, has made progress. Um, and, but Denmark didn't become Denmark by being Denmark. 
it went through a very messy process of uh, adjusting, making all of those pragmatic changes and other things, and gradually advancing and becoming Denmark. And there's no shortcut to that. Uh, we can't just follow, copy Denmark uh, on solutions that may not work for our local institutional context of the place that we are working with. Um, so um, enough on that. Uh, Zahir asked about incentive structures in formal institutions. Again, a big, huge. Um, uh, there is a way to like address these uh, both. Uh, that depends on people inside, people reform champions inside who are willing to work uh, on these questions, ideally with people from the outside, through a process that is also transparent and that generates evidence of whether this worked or not. And that evidence could itself become a factor in, uh, in persistence of those reforms, may not work perfectly. Um, but it's also not just a question of uh, insider reform, pressure from outside could also uh, uh, could also help deliver a uh, sustained pressure for inside actors to, to, to reform. When I was in government, uh, I exposed realized some of my most important allies were those who criticized me or my institution or my work. Uh, I didn't like them at the moment. Uh, but they helped create an environment, a pressure that helped me fight internal battles. Okay. And whether we like it or not, a system, uh, we need dip different players who may be contesting with each other, but in equilibrium or in a system, they are supporting reforms. That could be uh, people in the political space, civil society, media, uh, consultants, researchers, all kinds of other players. Lastly, uh, Luis asked about technology. Yes, technology could, could be, um, could bring a lot of, uh, could uh, in theory address some of these challenges. So if you think of the underlying challenge being asymmetric information, one side doesn't know what the other side is doing, or uh, different incentives because we can't measure, in theory technology can address, help address some of these challenges. We can know whether a teacher showed up or not. We can also use all of those approaches to, to come up with better measures of these things. The key challenge there is technology is not a solution per se. So all the evidence that we are getting from, a, from de deploying technology is, it's not per se a solution. We have to, to, to integrate technology with the incentive structures again. It may help um, address some of those incentive challenges, but it's not a substitute. It's a complement to those other things, governance, institutional reform, and not a substitute for those. Let me stop there. Thank you. I think we have um, time for another round of questions. So um, I had my over here, and I had um, the lady over here, and I also have someone um, online, and then I see some more um, fingers. So let's see how many we can pack in. Yes, thank you. Oh, so they're, they're going around. Yes, Maya. Hi, uh, thanks very much for the very interesting presentations and discussion. Uh, uh, sorry, I'm Maya King from King's College London and ODI. Uh, just on the, the, the talk about the culture clash between guardians and spenders, uh, really resonates, and I think Alistair McKechnie used to talk about the high priests of procurement, who <laughs> took procurement as a kind of doctrine. Um, and I think that uh, I just want to—I don't know anything about Denmark, but um, I feel like these issues are just kind of an ongoing, an ongoing tension in the system between sector ministries and finance, between guardians and spenders. You know, they're inherent in this process. There's no version that's going to make everything work perfectly, and uh, there's going to be some perfect balance. Like, there's no optimal 
optimal approach, really. I mean, if you look back at the few last few decades of the Treasury uh, in the UK, the balance between the power of the Treasury and the sector ministries is continually changing, and the processes that they use to manage those relationships is continually changing. So um, I just think we talked about let's not have best practice, but let's let's kind of recognise that this tension between these cultures, these professional groups, is something that, that we need to manage on an ongoing basis rather than in a perfect way. Can we get, uh, yeah, good. Um, I uh, very, very much appreciated the um, sort of economic framework for thinking about VFM um, comment uh, from Adnan. In that regard, there's um, sort of two issues that um, have uh, seen, that have, in countries I've worked in, have become rather important for achieving VFM in procurement, in, in particular in health sector goods. Um, drugs and other health sector goods. Uh, one of those is that, and in, in particularly in countries where there are very concentrated economic interests, often private sector prices um, and private sector supply chains are very high by international standards for goods that are you know, available internationally. And often um, structure of markets and regulation of markets is, is, is an impediment to getting good value for money in public sector procurement um, that also affects people who are purchasing privately. So, so one question to the panel is, are there good examples of effective um, coordination between competition authorities or economic regulatory authorities and uh, public procurement on that issue? Um, somewhat re um, well, a somewhat separate issue is that in... Um, uh, many of those goods in a sector that has to be very responsive—that's also complex. Um, there are sort of there are kind of can be trade-offs between getting good procurement prices and having efficient and responsive, um, timely supply chains. Um, and again, I'm, I'd appreciate any comments or insights from panel members on um, on whether there are good examples or is is, is there emerging um, emerging good practice in the area of of, um, of uh, p procuring in ways that um, takes consideration of both timeliness and price identify yourself please Sorry, I'm Lorraine Hawkins um, and I work with the health foundation and WHO great thank you very much now we had um, the gentleman over here then Andrew and then I do have someone online yeah, I'm Thomas Feige from the European Commission in Brussels. Um, I have a question uh, more related to the to the solutions. It's a sobering finding, of course. Uh, uh, the, uh, in spite of the good intentions, but um, uh, yeah, what concretely should should be changed uh, in the law? What what is done usually is um, that. Um, Procurement is differentiated uh, uh, according to amount uh, of money and given more flexibility being given to lower amounts, procurement with lower amounts um, and uh, more uh, uh, competitive and complex procedures for, for bigger procurement. And, uh, the, and when we observe the, the practice, often we see that um, in in many countries uh, procurement is done uh, with uh, on an uncompetitive basis with direct attribution uh, in violation of the law. And um, so um, uh, my question is a bit: You were pleading for more flexibility, making making. Um, uh, making uh, procedures less heavy, what should be concrete, 
concretely changed in the laws. And then a second aspect related to that is the um, question uh, of external actors um, to um, bringing um, independent uh, institutions in to, to improve governance and procurement, in particular uh, independent procurement regulatory boards or uh, promoting uh, performance audits of procurement, for example, to, uh, to strengthen um, uh, value for money orientation in procurement. Good morning, I'm Andrew Lawson from Fiscus. Uh, I was quite taken by Joe's example of uh, a situation where if you don't follow the rules, you can buy a car for £20,000, but if you do follow the rules, it's going to cost you 35000 And I was involved in an exercise in Tanzania some years back uh, to help the government find ways of improving value for money in health and education spending. I worked with Catherine Dahm, amongst others. And um, we worked along an, a range of areas, but one of the issues we looked at was the procurement of food for boarding schools. Uh, Tanzania has quite a number of boarding schools for historical reasons, and the cost of procurement of food was unusually high, partly for the reasons that Joe described. Uh, in other words, the suppliers believe that they will be paid on time and won't be paid on time, so they raise their premium but also because of the complexity of buying food. The supplier has to guarantee that the price of rice that she or he is providing will be the same each month, whereas in reality it won't. Uh, in rural areas of Tanzania, the price of, of rice or maize fluctuates quite a lot, depending on the time of harvest, etc. So the provider has to guess and, and take the risk of that price fluctuation. So what was proposed was to establish food committees in the schools, which were run predominantly by the pupils themselves. Because of course, who cares most about the quality of food? The people who eat it. And so the pupils, together with the cooks, and I think a teacher, I can't quite remember the structure, set up a food committee, and they were given a lump sum per month, and they would go off and buy whatever food was in the market. So if rice was cheap, they would buy rice. If maize was cheaper, they would buy maize. And if they were forced to, they'd buy cassava. Um, and the same for their proteins, et cetera, et cetera. And I was wondering if you have any examples of that sort of thing where you don't have a deficit of trust, because I think this goes back to the phrase that, that, that Jody used earlier, where there is trust that there is a team of people who will procure in a sensible way and in this particular case, the savings were retained at the school level for other things, for repainting classrooms and stuff like that. And I wonder if you have any examples. The way it was applied, responding to Thomas's question, was through a waiver of the procurement law. So there was a formal waiver. And I just wonder if there are more examples of that kind of thing where we take the opportunity to take advantage of trust and deliberately waive procurement rules. Is that, is that a way forward? Have you seen it? Is there any examples? Um, thank you, Andrew. Are there any questions from the room? Because I have one from online. Um, 
and Mark didn't advise me that I needed glasses to read this thing. <laughs> so forgive me, my age is now showing really badly. Um, how do you deal with malicious governance in the case of regulations, especially where there are conflicts between the finance and service delivery departments? And I think some of this has already be, been uh, touched upon. And if I may abuse uh, my, my uh, role as chair, I wanted to pick up on something that Andrew has said, because part of the work that we're starting to develop uh, within Pogo, uh, a colleague of ours who's not uh, here at the moment, he's in Ghana, uh, uh, Sam Sharp, um, he is reflecting a little bit on what an adaptive bureaucracy might look like um, and what might be uh, signs of how an adaptive uh, bureaucracy works and whether and how lessons from those experiences can be applicable to other bureaucracies. So if you have examples of something like this, tagging on to what Andrew's saying, that would be great. And you obviously have one minute each to enlighten us and uh, give us all of the answers. Um, I don't believe in solutions, by the way. I only believe in ways forward. So hopefully you will get us ahead one step at a time. Um, can we start with you, Adam? OK. Uh, <laughs> I don't know where to start. Uh, completely agree with Maya. Uh, no comment there. Uh, Thomas, rules, what exactly would we change in rules? Um, so depends on the context. So, um, we're not saying rules are, are inefficient in all cases. Partly depends on what you diagnose the problem with. If the problem is active based on corruption, obviously you need to have sense of rules to be able to, um, to to guard against that. If you're looking into Mobutu Zaire, maybe that's the first order problem. I don't know whether that works in that world or not. But uh, the argument that we are making is rules are all, also not costless. So having more rules can create their own inefficiencies. And uh, at least in the environment that we context that we were working on, one of the way forward would be uh, to have more simple rules, but rules that we can actually measure whether they are followed or not, and not have roundabout ways of doing that, and uh, delegate more autonomy to, to frontline agents, but also hold them accountable uh, for performance ex post would be another way of, uh, again, need to be tested, again, something that we are interested in. Um, uh, the other way, which is also relates to one of the other questions is, uh, uh, use technology along with these incentive structures, which is that the source of the problem uh, could be, in our context, for the type of goods that we worked on, generic goods, uh, there was less action on, these, uh, on the supplier side. That's a question that Lorraine also uh, mentioned, uh, because there are millions of like, suppliers who are willing to pay paper or others. Most of the action was inside the government uh, by the prices paid by different government bodies. You need to pay the, the monitor to get a bill across. In other contexts, um, the source of the problem could be limited competition, oligopoly or mono monopoly or cartels outside in the, on the side of vendors who work with interest, vested interests inside government. You need to have a different design, like a, maybe optimal design of whether auctions or something else um, would would be the solution to to uh, to work on those uh, questions. So I don't know how I may have already I think, yeah. adaptive bureaucracy. So maybe I don't know, like um, million dollar question. So I'm deeply interested in that question of uh, why do we not build organizations that are learning organizations that learn from their mistakes over time, where the incentive structures are that you. Um, mistakes are costly in, in governance, uh, but mistakes are celebrated there because they provide an opportunity for you to learn and change course, have course correction over time. And again, uh, depends on both the incentive structures, 
but partly also the constraints that we put on the on the <coughs> on bureaucracies and government systems are very different from the constraints that we put, say, on private sector. So James Wilson's entire work is about like how the how the constraints that we put on the public sector produce the outcome, the inefficient outcome that we uh, that we worry about. If I'm a private sector, if I'm a private guy who wanted to buy a car, I don't have any constraint. Like a, for a private sector, yes, there are some constraints, but not massive. For a public sector, I, it's not just the outcome, but we're also interested in, did we follow the process? Was it a transparent? Did we have a level playing field or not? Uh, these are all normative questions that uh, society has put on those. And sometimes there are trade-offs between these. Should we allow for a little bit of some um, slippage on active waste? Uh, or on the passive ways to do, there are no perfect solutions there. The, the question is fascinating. I'm deeply interested in that question. Thank you. And then, um, may I turn to you, Joe? <coughs> Thanks. Um, <clears throat> what should be changed in the, <coughs> in the law? Sorry. Um, lower amounts usually have greater flexibility. Um, people are a lot more creative than that. Um, what usually happens is uh, if the threshold is £2,000, then 90% of the contracts are £1,999, 99p. Uh, and so people resort to, uh, to, to contract splitting. Um, the procurement authority, what it then does is rather than deal with that issue, lowers the threshold even further. And, and so it just keeps... That's what happens. It just keeps going. <coughs> it keeps going lower and lower. I think that technology can help. Um, the one good thing about technology is at least it leaves an audit trail. It, it leaves a clear audit trail. Um, it enables the, the 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 little guys and and, and girls to be able to compete. Um, it enables. It does away with, oh, we couldn't find your file or we didn't receive your, uh, your bid because, you know, everything is, everything is done online. So it, it does help, particularly for, for certain amounts. The truth of the matter, though, is that if I'm a minister or a director general and I want you to get the contract, you will get it. I mean, let's not pretend about it. I will make the rules fit <laughs> to ensure that you get it. And, and the one thing you need to know about, uh, about public servants, particularly in developing countries, is that they absolutely abhor corruption so long as it's not their own. And so they hate everyone else being corrupt except them. Um, and so there's this trade-off between, okay, do you, would you accept a narrowing of the circle or would you say it's all or nothing? It's, it's, it's an ideological challenge that, that we all need to, to face. The other ideological challenge is there's, a, there's a, a, a few governors in Nigeria now who, there's one particular governor actually whose allocation from the federal port is about the lowest in the, in the country. Uh, but he's delivering real value, and he's delivering real value by using direct labor. So he's saying, I cannot afford to pay 35,000 pounds. I can't afford it. And so I'm going to go to the villages and say, if you're able to supply sand, please come and do so. If you're able so, he's involving the community in providing uh, public goods. But 
how much longer before he's labeled a communist um, is a question we need to answer. And so if you, if, if you use things like direct labor more, if you use things like, um, uh, what did Andrew call it? Uh, food committees, food committees uh, more, um, is that ideologically acceptable uh, to us? The one interesting thing, similar to the schools one, is the feeding of prisoners. And so if you look at how much is spent to feed prisoners per head, most of the time you say, what are they eating? <laughs> are they having caviar and champagne? Is that, you know, um, how could it cost this much to, to, to feed prisoners? And they do you, caviar, right? <laughs> And are you sure I won't go and break that speed light just to, you know, eat properly for a week um, or so? So, but, but, but that's, a, that's a demonstration of, why, of when the system doesn't work for, for what it's, it's meant to do. And yes, there are no, there are no uh, easy answers. Uh, I, I, I think what I'll say is, is to agree with Neil. It needs a rethink. The, the whole thing needs a rethink. We need to think about, okay, what things should we allow direct labor, direct purchase? Um, in. What things do we need to trust certain people and then hold them account rather than counting staples? You know, sometimes we don't even count staplers, we actually count staples. You know, so what, what things do you hold people accountable for and allow them to use a bit of discretion and then measure what they, what they deliver in the end? I think we need, to, we need to rethink that. We also need to rethink the um, the processes we use, uh, quite often, you're operating 10 processes when two or three could be sufficient. Um, but you want to follow the 10 processes because someone um, uh, in another country has designed certain rules that says for a, for a country that has this prevalence of corruption, you must follow these 10 rules. Well, it's easy to bypass almost nine of those 10 rules. So you might as well have two or three. If, not, if it does nothing else, it makes the procurement less expensive. Thank you, Joe. I fear that I have put Jody on the most precarious position because Just you are the firewall bef between <laughs> um, the crown and lunch. But please, um, sure. if you have some comments that you want to share with us, they'll yeah. be very well. No, I'll be brief. I think. Um, just to reflect on the word best practices, I, I totally agree, Adnan. I think, but I do think that within a country where there is research going on, to not lift out best practices that other provinces within that same country can learn from is a mistake. So I totally agree the sort of best practices that come from elsewhere, we should be very wary. But within, within you know, the re a lot of research goes on in developing countries, um, and, and it's important to lift out some of those learnings. Um, the other, so it's not, it's not public sector, but South Africa, and you can look at it online, but we recently have just concluded what we call the health market inquiry into the private sector's procurement and the costs of the private sector, um, basically because what we've found is that uh, currently people are paying for private medical schemes and, and getting very little. And so there was a movement to try and see what, you know, what is going on there. And as a result of that conversation, people also obviously also spoke about the public sector's uh, procurement as well. And it's worth having a look if you're interested uh, in competition commissions sort of role within health systems um, because there was there's been quite a lot of a lot of talk around the private healthcare sector lately 
Um, so uh, the question around uh, how can we have good but timely procurement I think is really, really important and one we talk about within health spaces a lot that we need flexible PFM systems. And I think Neil's answer is the answer that I would go with, which is that we need better contract man management. If you have a contract, the price is already set, you can buy off it, you've got an established amount, uh, then it becomes much, much simpler to do things quickly. And we have a few examples of that in South Africa with regards to the way we procure ARVs um, and other types of medicines where we've been able to actually lock in an amount at a set price uh, and we purchase as we, as we need. And that's worked really well in getting, um, getting everything at the right time. Um, I think the last thing I just wanted to say um, that very recently an article has come out by one of the sort of leading public health specialists in South Africa around creating a learning system uh, in South Africa as we move towards a national health insurance, which is our current hot topic. And I think, um, you know, the food example is amazing. And I think it can even work even within a very sort of trust deficit organization. So one of the other recommendations from the research is that there was a district centralization committee that was doing the compliance for the provincial committee. And so what people were saying was, okay, let those, some of those people sit on the provincial committee for a while, learn how it works at that stage, and then hopefully through engaging, being face-to-face, -face, talking things through, having a shared purpose, uh, head office might be more likely to feel safe, that they could de you know, decentralize some functions. So I think opportunities to work together on a shared problem uh, really do seem to help bridge that trust deficit. So we can't wait for the trust to magically happen. Uh, we have to find ways to do those sorts of food committee uh, ways. Um, so I think I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Can I ask for a round of applause? I, I loved hearing all of this stuff because at the heart is the fact that politics matters. You cannot get to Denmark by being Denmark. <laughs> and at best, we can find uh, solutions that are far from perfect. So thank you. That was great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Thank you.